Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. This week, I'm talking to Tanner McPherson-Smith, founder of Clear Minds. We talk about mental health and well-being, particularly thinking about children returning to school this week. We consider how individual children might present but also think about whole school approaches, particularly how to survey staff and pupils about how they are feeling. And we also talk about some things which I found really interesting, particularly as a parent, about how repeated negative experiences in childhood can have a really long-term impact on young people. And we also hear a little bit more about how Tanner goes about explaining mental health to young people. Thinking of everyone as the new term begins this week, you've absolutely got this. Before we begin, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. I'm joined by Tanner McPherson-Smith, who is founder of Clear Minds. Welcome, Tanner. Hi, Hi. Thanks, for, thanks for having me on. Great stuff. Perhaps you could start by telling us briefly uh, a bit about yourself and Clear Minds and what it does. Okay, so Clear Minds has been um, up and running since 2015, and I created the company on the back of 25 years of work as a teacher and a senior leader and a school governor and um, all the observations that I'd made about the decline in mental health of the teenagers and the younger children that I was working with over that time and I got increasingly concerned about what was going on. Um, then I had experience of my own mental health problems and out of that experience came um, a real need and desire to understand exactly what's going on and why so many adults do have mental health issues and where it starts and how and why increasing numbers of children are struggling with mental health problems. So um, having done lots of research and met with hundreds of people and studied a lot, I launched Clear Minds um, with the sole intention of tackling the issue of child and adolescent mental health problems from the grassroots up with the aim being to work on prevention, preventing it from even starting in the first place. Because we're trying really hard to stick plasters on the already wounded, and that is incredibly necessary and important. But actually, if we want to have to make long-term change, we've really got to start looking at how we prevent it from even starting. Um, I'm sure you're aware that uh, 50% of all adult mental health illness is already embedded by the age of 14. Um, and 75% by the age of 24. So if if 50% of all of that mental health issue is already sort of there in the making by 14, what is it that's happening between 0 and 14 that's creating these issues? So that's the premise for the, for the organisation is that I go into schools across the country and run inset training. I do a lot of parent workshops and presentations um, and presentations with pupils from five to... 19 to explain in a way that I find really works that helps people to understand why this is happening how it happens and then what steps we can take to to make a difference 
So it's education on the large part, it's providing tools, and then also offer a service of um, group work or one to work, one work with children from five to 24, uh, and also working collectively with families. So it's, it's pretty extensive what we're doing, um, but really exciting because, you know, we're, we're seeing change happen and, and when people will get it, when kids get it, they really get it and they start to take control of their own emotions, thoughts, feelings, and um, by changing the way they think, and this is one of the massive, massively important premises for me, if we can change the way children think, um, then we are halfway to overcoming the problem. Indeed. Um, and we wanted to talk a bit today, really, about the potential uh, for an increase in, in mental health issues in, in schools as, as children go back into the school environment. Interesting there, you were talking about your work with, with parents and children. Obviously, a lot of children have been, been at home with their parents in a, in a very unusual situation. And, and, and now thinking about heading, heading back to school, what, what kind of behaviours and, and presentations might school staff expect to see from, from those, those pupils as they reintegrate? Interesting thing is that a lot of what they will see will have been an underlying pattern beforehand, but maybe not so obvious. Um, some kids are just ecstatic to be going back because they just want to be away from home. They want to be back in, in with their friends. They want to have that opportunity to see others. Um, and they will, you know, like ducks to water, they'll get on with it. But for a lot of kids, particularly children who have already had anxiety around being in school for whatever reason, whether it's friendship or not being good enough or they've been bullied or they just have general anxiety, um, that can be greatly enhanced because they have been in this positive space at home and where that relationship has worked and they're able to be homeschooled and it's developed a stronger you know, foundation at home the thought of going back into the wilds of you know seeing lots of other people and a teacher that perhaps they don't know for this year can really raise the anxiety and i'm working with a lot of um children who are already thinking to themselves it's going to be impossible for them to go back into school and they're questioning. So there's very high, high levels of, of um, anxiety. Anger is also coming out in quite a lot of different ways. Um, anger at interruption, anger about the way things are being handled because children feel and pick up a lot from the news, from their parents, from the people that are around them. If people at home are talking all the time about, you know, they don't know about what they're doing and they shouldn't be doing this and oh it's ridiculous we shouldn't have to wear masks or oh it's awful we aren't wearing masks kids pick up and they take that with them um there will be some diffidence especially amongst the older kids who frankly just you know part of their teenage development and growing up is to believe that they're pretty um things aren't going to happen to them so they aren't going to catch covid it isn't going to be an issue for them without the thought that actually they could be a carrier for somebody more important. So there's really going to be a, a range of emotions coming in. Um, and I think teachers need to be looking at, I mean, I think schools completely need to be observing what's happening for the teachers. And if I was, if I was a head of a school now, I would be doing a survey of my teachers and I'd do a survey of my pupils right at the start. And I'd be looking at what are, what are you afraid of 
in this new arrangement in coming back to school? What what fears are there and why? Um, for, for, for children, I'd be asking them, you know, what, what do you feel you've lost most or gained most over the last six months? What are you concerned about? Um, what are the major worries for you? And it may be that they feel they've fallen behind with their work. I know a lot of children who are finding at the moment that they're very high achievers, they are perfectionists, they, they want their work to be right and they haven't achieved as well at home. And so they want to get back, but they're very concerned that they're going back and not doing well enough. So there's a whole range of emotions that are walking into school. Uh, and a lot of those will be founded by what they, they've been exposed to at home for the last six months. say a real a real range there and potentially quite difficult to to unpick some children may may come back on the the first day very excited to be back in school and then and then things shift and change presumably yeah um you know it it it, it feels like it there will be a lot of short-term uh, need, but also this is going to be a really long-term issue for, for a lot of those pupils. I think so, and that's at all ages, because nobody knows when this is going to be resolved, if this is going to be resolved, or whether this is going to be a long-term norm. So uh, for those children that are looking to taking exams to their next schools, if they're looking to take their GCSEs, their A-levels, they want to go to college, there's that big question mark about, you know, especially with the fiasco of all the results, this year you know what are they actually going to be able to achieve and how's it going to work so there's there's the whole academic concern about where a school is going to take them for um some children i mean i i know um i was working quite closely with the school last term who did this is a, a junior school who did bring in their year six pupils and they were like rabbits in headlights the children when they came back you know sort of like what am I allowed to do? Who am I allowed to talk to? There's all these people around, even though they're my friends. Then they found that their close friends were in different bubbles. They were almost white-faced when they first came in, and it took them a week. And then it was, oh, yes, this is we're thriving on interaction with other children, um, just seeing having more structured teaching, having that kind of routine back in place. And then it kind of got a bit. We're bored, we're bored with this because there are so many things that are missing. Mm. You know, the, the, the things that many children love, like the, the, the team games, the, the matches, the, the interactive drama, um, playing music together, those things that may well not be there. So there is definitely going to be an impact. Even if it's not happening immediately, I think it will be quite long term because we tend to bury issues as they come up. And then when you bury them, and, and I was talking to a 14 year old yesterday who's been doing exactly that and, and just putting them out on the mask that everything's fine. But if you keep burying it, and I'm, I think I'm testament to this, then when the lid comes off, it can be spectacular um, in a not very good way. So, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting um, point to, to think about there. I mean, you, you, you referenced some of the things that children really in, enjoy about school um, and, and, and previously uh, talking about exams and things like that, just those usual kind of markers uh, and things like the nativity play and the Christmas fair or w 
or whatever a lot of those sort of regular points for everybody involved in, mm. in school we we can't say when those things will be possible again yeah. and perhaps that <clears throat> lack of lack of clarity and certainty and end goal in the case of sort of exams and things will make a, a big difference to sort of what are people doing in school mm. and, and mm. where's it all heading and where do parents get the opportunity to come in and and really see their children you know doing things where they're really actively involved but if there aren't the plays there isn't the music making there aren't the matches they're not seeing those those elements they're only hearing what they're hearing at home when the children get back home about their academics i mean i know schools are going to do as much as they can to keep interaction going um in as wide a range as possible but i don't think anybody really knows at the moment how it's actually going to work and i know a lot of children who are who's best friends might be the ones that they meet at break and the ones that they meet at lunch because they're in different class sets and then they arrive back and they're in their own class bubble and they don't have access to those friends so easily they're not seeing them in classrooms if they're changing you know groups so there are a lot of question marks I think it's really important for school leaders to understand to, to get a feel for how the staff are feeling because actually it's really important for the staff to be radiators, to be really positive, not to be heard complaining about this isn't working and uh, this is not fair on the kids and all these negative things because they will pick that up and take it in and out of school with them. And that really will impact the general feeling of the whole school. And just thinking a little bit there about, about, about teachers and particularly where they're changing changing classes, children transitioning into different different year groups, different different schools. How how should those those teachers be assessing students' uh, mental health and and well being and kind of monitoring it um, if if they're not so particularly if they're not so familiar with those children? Uh, yes, and when you've got new children coming into your school, and so you've got nothing to compare against. Really, what you're looking out for are um, any changes of behaviour from how they were when they walked in the door. Uh, looking for segregation for children that are taking themselves away from others, that are not automatically going and sitting with them for meals, that are choosing to, you know, to stand back a bit. Um, children that are always saying that they can't do something, they can't, I can't, they're putting their hand up all the time, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, because they've got a fear of even starting and they've got, maybe got a fear of failure. Um, Children that are exhibiting real tiredness, and it may be that they're out of control in terms of the fact that they're allowed their phones and they're on their phones and they're texting with people all night. But it is also, you know, if they're not sleeping because the thoughts are running around in their head all the time, the minute they put their head on the pillow, they get all these um, ruminating thoughts and they catastrophize about what's going to happen. Then, so a child that's always yawning or just not really engaging is important to pick up on. Anger is also. Um, really shows that there's something going wrong underneath. We're not born angry people. Anger develops out of a whole history of events or behaviours and is a way of releasing how someone feels underneath and they don't know often how else to express it. So anger is always worth looking behind. Um, insecure, children that look insecure, that are constantly wanting your attention, may all be indications that there are levels of anxiety or uncertainty or emotional distress underneath. 
Um, and then it's about really talking one-to-one, -one, and I mean eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball conversations with the kids and, and actually looking behind the behaviour completely and asking them how they really feel and what is it that's causing them. Because fear is, is, is the, it underlies everything. It'll be fear that's underlying anger or, or um, anxiety or just you know being lonely, fear about friendship, fear about achieving, fear about a million and one things. Fear is just actually fundamentally about not being good enough. So it's looking for changes in behavior. It's looking for isolation. It's looking for kids that are not eating properly, that are not engaging with others easily, that are um, exhibiting real anger, kids that are bullying others. Um, Again, it's the behavior that is bullying. The kid is, is not a bully as such. It's, there's an underlying cause for that. And for me, it's about really noting how children are when they first come in, really talking and engaging one-to-one -one with those children that we're concerned about, um, actually with all of them. Because, you know, I've worked with kids from what are, are the happiest families that I've ever come across where they do everything together, they have a, a real laugh, they, they absolutely love being together. But that doesn't mean that that child is exempt from having issues because they, they personally want to do so well. They may personally want to achieve in a way that other, others in the family have achieved or that their parents have talked excitedly about and, and they, can't, they, they can't meet their own expectations. And sometimes the biggest smiles actually hide the the greatest fears or the greatest upsets. And just just thinking about that 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 point of sort of every every child really. And before we started the podcast, we were talking about the need for kind of preventative uh, act activity. There, what what kind of whole school approaches um, might a school take to 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 well being and, and mental health, particularly in these in these times. If I was working in, a, I think, all, in all primary schools, I would want them to understand, and I'm sure they do to a point, how they are, primary and nursery are the most critical years of all in terms of prevention of developing mental health issues. And the more that the school can really engage children in talking about their feelings from as early as two upwards and talking about it on a really regular basis, and understand, helping them to understand that they feel feelings in their body and where they feel them and being able to express what the feeling is and what it came from. Was it somebody upset them? Did something happen? Did they feel they didn't do well enough? And to, for them to start associating feelings with events. And then because, because the, foundations of, <laughs> the foundations of all mental health issues really start within the first seven years. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that um, of all adult mental health issues, 50% is already embedded by the age of 14, which means that a lot is happening in those first 14 years. The reality is that most of the, um, the foundations for emotional and mental health issues will be established within the first seven years. And that's not saying that teachers are failing them or schools are failing them or parents are failing children or doing terrible things. It's just the minutiae of day-to-day -day events and how that makes each child feel according to that, that moment that creates uh, what we call limiting beliefs, um, which usually start with the words, I'm not good enough, 
I'm not good enough to dot, dot, dot. I'm not good enough to fulfill my parents' expectations. I'm not good enough to make it into the first team. I'm not good enough to get a part in the play. And, and fundamentally, I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm not good enough to be important, to be noticed, to do well, to have friends. And that little sentence of I'm not good enough is, is critical. So junior schools, nurseries have a really critical role in ensuring that children start to really understand about their feelings and so on. But also the way that the teachers interact with the children is key. And having proper eyeball to eyeball conversations with every child is, it makes a massive difference. I can honestly say, I mean, I've been given some of the most difficult children, children who have really serious issues at home and at schools uh, and are very, in some cases, extremely angry or very suicidal or you know, really help hate themselves in various ways, can be real bullies at school. I've not met a single child that isn't actually really genuinely lovely. Every single one, um, even the ones that schools have been, you know, thinking the next step is for them to be excluded. When you really talk to the kids, you get to the heart of what's of who they are, what they're interested in, and what's holding them back. It, it's transformational. So those one-to-one -one conversations with children of all ages are really important. I would also be looking at teaching throughout the school the, the reality that we are what we think. And if a child thinks all the time they're going to fail and that I'm not going to be do well enough and I'm not going to get my exams and I'm not going to get into the team, our brains do everything they can to fulfill, fulfill those wishes and make it come true. So if you can help children to turn their thinking around away from the negative, away from past events, and actually talk about having achieved already, talk about having got a part in the play, having passed their exams. I am a part of the football team. I am a part of the orchestra. Um, I am enough, full stop. The brain then starts to do what it can to make that happen. And the brain actually doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So that the more children can be taught to believe, to imagine that they have already achieved whatever it is that they're concerned about, the more the brain tries to match that because it believes that to be real. So I would, I think teaching the way children, the way we think is really critical because you can help children to turn down the negative voice and actually ramp up the positive feelings. For younger children, I think it's a really interesting, this, this works so well. If they are struggling with other children, if they're struggling with a teacher that they don't get on with, um, if somebody makes them frightened, if they're being bullied, if there are nasty things being said to them, I just say to them, imagine you've got a magic bubble. You know, they all know what a bubble looks like that you can blow off, off a soap thing. And imagine it's big enough for you to get into. And every day when you get off the school bus or you get into the car to go to school, you step into your magic bubble. And the bubble can be anything. So it could be any given ideas. It could be a ninja bubble or a football bubble or a unicorn bubble or a friendship bubble as one of the kids suggested the other day. You can see out, everyone can see in, but it's a strong bubble. And if anything nasty happens and people say nasty things about you or people are bullying or a teacher shouts at you all the time, you just imagine that the words 
hit the edge of the bubble and just slide down. So they don't come in and actually hurt you. They're there, but they, they, they're being said that they actually don't become so important to you. And I've done this with every kind of age child and everyone that's used it. I've, I did it with a whole class of five and six year olds. Uh, and I came back the next week and said, you know, has anybody used any of the tools that I've given you? And all of their hands shot up and they said, well, I've used the bubble. And in fact, the headmaster was telling me that he found one of these five-year-olds explaining to a year um, six people how to use the bubble so that he wouldn't get so often the play, upset in the playground. It's really simple. Um, I would really urge schools to get to understand fairly early on through a survey or otherwise how the, the staff are feeling, how the pupils are feeling. There are certain areas in schools, particularly in secondary schools, where pupils feel, a lot of pupils feel very unsafe. And I don't think we take that seriously enough. So I would always, in, in all schools, all ages, I would always put a map out of the school to all the children and say, right, just fill in any areas where you feel uncomfortable or afraid or less safe. Um, and it's very interesting what comes back. And there'll be areas of the playground that are less monitored by teachers. Very, very often it's in the toilets. Um, cues for meals, because that's when comments get passed. Corridors. I One thing I really strongly recommend, and I think it could be even more important with the new structure of having bubbles and kids staying in one room and staff moving potentially, is actually if schools got a system for a loudspeaker system to play music between lessons. And I did this with a, a school that had a very poor history, it's a very, very big school, poor history of behavior, classroom behavior and so on. And I was so impressed that the head actually started this the next day after I'd been and, and been doing some work with the school. And within a week, the behavior in the classrooms had improved really dramatically corridors, waiting for lessons and so on. And I know that's all changing and kids may not be um, queuing in the same way. But that's a time where children that are feeling vulnerable or shyer, they don't have so many friends that feel self-conscious about the way they look, feel that they're stupid in comparison, they're not part of the popular set, find corridors and waiting outside classrooms and being in queues really deeply uncomfortable. But the music can help to fill the gap they hear people talking they make it up that it's about them but when there's music it relaxes people and, and you can get the kids involved in, in deciding what's going to be played but make it a real variety even just bird song you know nature sounds it can be great fun to walk into a classroom you have that sort of thing i think if people are, if, if schools are having bubbles that are staying in one room that's actually a really long period to be in one space so if you can break it between lessons by doing something you know, with jazz music or something really funky or one of their songs. It just fills the air, fills the atmosphere and changes the mood ready for the next lesson. So there's really simple things that can be done that um, actually make a really powerful change. Yeah, I really like that idea, especially with, um, you know, if, if children in some schools are going to be wearing masks in those transition areas, you know, something to distract from, from that. And it's also not not that easy to chat with a with a mask on 
I've mm. tried. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, th- I think that that's a that's a really that's a really interesting idea, and and that also that thinking about, you know, a, a sort of child's eye view of you of your school, because it's very difficult as a as a teacher or a leader because you feel confident in every part of your school, hopefully, um, yeah. to understand where where children physically don't mm. don't feel um, as safe or comfortable and just just thinking a little bit about um uh you know the approaches that the school might take obviously parents have been much more involved in their children's academic activities and um i speak as as one myself spending way more time with their children than Mm -hmm. they anticipated in the in the in the last few months how how can schools involve parents in in this in this work i think certainly in the lower levels if there can be a book that gets that's that's passed or some information so that parents kept into the loop of the loop about what's happening at school because i think a lot of parents have a much better perspective on how difficult teaching is and how difficult it is to focus a child and to encourage and to, you know, when, it, when, when they have difficulties, how not to get angry. Uh, I know a lot of parents have got really angry with their children because, because of the frustration of not being able to help. So I think it's really important for schools to try and keep parents as involved as possible. Uh, and I would involve them particularly in anything that you're doing with, in relation to education on mental health issues. I think particularly for primary schools, um, almost creating a contract with new parents coming into your school to say that um, we want us to have a shared relationship with your children, about your children. And if we do any, any teaching on mental health things, we, we want you to be there to help you to understand so that we're all working from the same position and the same understanding. Uh, regrettably, in a lot of schools, parents are not interested in having any involvement. And, you know, I've, I've known somewhere, I think they might see two out of their class of 30 plus parents at a parents evening. And there just isn't that engagement. And I suspect a lot of those parents will be quite glad to have their children back at school because, you know, they, they, they don't want to have the engagement. It's not something that they're really involved with. I think it's important um, so any kind of exchange of a little bit of information, if you've got a child that you're concerned about, great at any level that at the end of the day you touch base with the child or you send a note to parents and say, what we've, we've suggested is that they engage in this. We're just asking them to smile at everybody that they pass. Can you do the same at home? Can you encourage that? Or for parents to say, I had one yesterday who said their daughter had been back at having a taster day to get back into the school life before it actually starts came home super excited so thrilled to see her friends everything was fine for a while and then dissolved into an absolute rage of anger couldn't say anything about why or what had happened now there's clearly there is a trigger something's happened at school but can't yet express so for that piece of information to go back to say came home really excited but actually there's obviously something that's happened can you keep an eye it all it makes it so much easier if we're working together as a team. That's not so easy though when everybody's not able to pop into the classroom. You know when we have these bubbles. Um, I hope to goodness that parents in playgrounds at pickup time actually adhere to rules and regulations. I have seen so many who 
don't give a monkeys about what spots there are on the floor and how far apart they're meant to be from each other, but just drift closer and closer because they're so engaged in conversation. So it, it is a whole school, whole parent need. Um, I think one of my concerns with parents of younger children is there seems to be all the evidence that I have from all the people I know who are still teaching and from my work as a governor of a junior school and so on is so many parents just hand their children over and are expecting teachers to teach far more of what we should be learning at home. Uh, and I'm just not taking responsibility for the everyday niceties of, of you know life and expecting teachers to do an awful lot more and their job is big enough and teachers work have worked incredibly hard through this last period they do anyway but i think it's been 10 times harder for them in teaching online changing the way that they teach so that they can do everything especially when they're practical subjects and so on and and the extra hours that have been needed is, is just been enormous so as a head, I would just hope that that is really acknowledged at the start of term, the way the staff have pulled together to keep classes and things going. Really acknowledge that it's a pretty difficult time and it brings up some pretty awful stuff, but actually we're going to work together as a team in the most positive way we possibly can. We're going to be positive with the kids. We're going to uh, reassure them all the time that we can make this work, that they will get the exams, they will get the teaching that they need but fundamentally that in the end, they're the only ones that can do the work. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I think there's maybe some, you know, there will be reflections from 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 all sides, from parents, from schools about, as you say, um, you know, where the responsibility for some of this lies. It was interesting to see a few weeks ago on Teacher Tap, and they now have a, um, a corresponding app called Parent Ping, which has slightly fewer parents on it actually quite a lot of agreement when teachers were asked the question and when parents were asked the question whose responsibility is it for to sort of teach children to read both groups kind of said it's a, it's you know 50 50 50 home school kind of partnership uh there so uh yeah it will be it will be um a, a readjustment as we say for for everybody involved in in school um as as we as we go back but um hopefully hopefully some 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 interesting learning and, and, and improvements from that lockdown period too and is there anything else that you'd like to to share with our audience today from 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 your experience going into the next school year I think possibly just a, just to explain a bit of the understanding if that's if that's okay with you about why so many children are struggling and why some will come in and cope really well with everything that's being thrown at them, what's going on, and others don't. When we all come from the fundamental sort of basics of being being a, a you know a child, um, the way that I would that I explain this to people is by using the the context of the inner monkey, um, and this explanation actually works really well whether you're a, a five year old or a parent or a teacher, and. I explain to children, I explain to teachers that I see each individual, every child has um, a tapestry. So how, usually you usually have to explain what a tapestry is these days because our kids don't seem to know very much about them. But a tapestry, you know, it having a million threads. So each person is made up a, a, an outline and a million stitches. And all of us are born with, it, with an inner monkey. And the inner monkey is just um, part of us for the whole of our lives. Now, when I ask 
parents and teachers um, or even teenagers what they remember before the age of seven, almost always it's quite major episodes. I mean, it might be that it was a child was taken to Euro Disney for their birthday or they were in a car crash or um, an elephant tickled their ear at the zoo. You know, it, it's usually something fairly major. Very few people can tell you about the day to day happenings or emotions. And for very many, there's a complete block. They can't actually remember anything at all. Uh, the point is that those first early seven years are the most critical to the whole of the development of a child's ability to have emotional resilience and to um, cope with life going forward. Uh, and much more important than we think. So if you imagine that you've, you're, you've got an inner monkey that has a large bag of crayons, and every time you have any experience, however tiny it is, the bag, they bring out the bag of crayons and they colour a thread according to the mood or according to the feelings that that experience has given you, the monkey's going to be really busy because we have experiences multiply all day long. We have emotional change, feelings differently all day long. If one, if the monkey's noticing that you're having a repeated behaviour or re repeated feelings of <clears throat> um, sadness or anger or fear, anxiety that are in response to day-to-day -day things, the monkey colours in the thread according to the feeling. If it's a great occasion, you feel really bubbly excited, it might be yellow or orange. If it's a negative feeling, it could be a dark colour. And basically, it will keep colouring until you, you develop with patches. And there might be one child who has multiple patches of really bright, bold, happy colours because life for them and their experiences have generally filled them with good feelings. But for a child who is struggling for whatever reason, it might be that people are not kind to them at school or they don't feel quite important enough at home because mum and dad are really busy. Um, it's our small repeated behaviours that build up what could be a large patch of a dark colour that we would call a limiting belief. And the limiting belief almost always starts with the words, I'm not good enough. And it could be, I'm not good enough to achieve. I'm not good enough to be loved. There's a, lots of good endings to that sentence. When children understand that, and I say to them, then the monkey is always going to keep pulling them backwards into the negative thoughts, the negative things that have happened and reminding them to, to save them from getting into that situation. So they might say to them, don't walk up to that group of people because in the past they've always laughed when you've joined when you've joined a group of people that's a pattern we've noticed so don't do it when the children understand that the monkey's talking in their ear and giving them all these negative thoughts about they're not going to be good enough they're not they, they, their work's not going to be good enough they're not going to get into the next school we talk to them about turning the monkey down just say i don't want to hear it i don't need to hear your voice thank you very much and start to build a positive relationship with this creature that's going to be with them forever I think that concept, I've obviously told that in a very sh short mm. sort of space of time, but it really works for children of all ages. It works just as well for teenagers. Uh, even some of the most academic, brightest kids have, when they thought about it, have realised how that visual imagery and the understanding of them having all these patches of different colours can really help them to change how they behave going forward because they, they start to shut off all the negative thinking um, and start to teach the monkey to see things in a more positive way about the future. And so I think the more that staff and parents can understand that in schools, the better you'll understand a child's behaviour patterns and why they respond. And one child will cope really well with this crisis and another child will find it extremely difficult.
and that will be based on the foundations, not necessarily of what's happened in the last six months, but what's happened in the first seven years of their lives. Thank you. That's that's really fascinating, and I think it's it's so interesting to emphasise the sort of everyday, slightly mundane, you know, small things that that build up and and cause problems, rather than always thinking about you know the trauma or grief yeah. or these these huge things. Um, yeah. Even down to a child coming out of the nursery every day, they're always so excited, you know, to bounce out at midday and see whoever's meeting them and tell them what's happened. Um, if they come out and most times whoever's meeting them is saying, has got their phone with them and just says, hang on a minute, I've just got to finish this text, or I've just got to finish this call, or even I've just got to finish this conversation with someone else's mum, that child very quickly, the monkey's colouring in how that moment feels when that child feels not important enough because by the time mum's fin or dad has finished what they're doing the bubbles burst and they, they haven't got the energy to tell them anymore so if that is repeatedly happening you know two three five times a week that very quickly builds a, feel, a belief that they're not important i'm not good enough to be noticed i'm not good enough for mum to put the phone away and it's one of the big things that children of all ages tell me when i say if there's one thing you could change about the parents more often than not, one thing come is is I wish they put their phone away. They weren't on their phone all the time. So it's small things like that. It isn't that isn't a trauma. It isn't a catastrophe. But it's a small, repeated, ever so simple behaviour that we just aren't aware of the impact. Indeed. Well, lots, lots to think about uh, there, and um, just really hearts go out to all the all the people working in in schools who will have to be navigating these tricky conversations not just in september not just for this kind of mythic return we all we're all focusing on but you know for the for the for the long term um and any any final points you want to make in 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 closing before we sign off I think just to it is a difficult period but you know i think we need to be very stoic like the older generation have been about the whole thing and just say it is what it is we're all doing our very very best as in schools um in getting this right and there's going to be teething problems for everybody not to beat ourselves up about it and just to see it as we're going to still run things in the most positive enthusiastic encouraging way that we possibly can and we're going to give kids the support by our being emotionally stable and enthusiastic and we just need to pay perhaps greater attention to the individual and any change in behavior or anything that might signify that they're into themselves or very angry or anxious and I think if we can put all that together that gives a really good sort of starting block for everything that's to come. Well, thank you so much, Tana, for sharing your your experience and expertise with us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.